Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life for people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. One of the most effective and well-known treatments for people with certain primary immunodeficiencies is immunoglobulin replacement therapy, but the versatility of the treatment is often misunderstood. In fact, today's guest jokes that she has 500 different patients on 500 different Ig regimens. Dr. M. Elizabeth Younger is a certified registered nurse practitioner as well as an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Younger joined us recently to present a forum on how Ig replacement therapy can be tailored to be as unique as the person who needs it. Dr. Younger wished to disclose that she serves as an advisor and consultant for several companies and organizations, one of which being IDF, which are all listed in the podcast description. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. I can't believe the numbers. They keep growing and growing. I keep thinking if you all have one single question, we're going to be here till tomorrow getting all your questions answered. So I'm going to go through the content. Um, not quickly, super quick, but hopefully efficiently so that you'll have time for your questions. So immunoglobulin, what is it? So it's a plasma product, as I'm sure most of you know, and it's manufactured from plasma collected from thousands and thousands of donors. Um, because it depends on the donors, every lot number is not exactly the same as the lot number that may have come before it. I tell patients it's a little bit like your favorite recipe. You can make it in your sleep, um, but sometimes it has a little bit more salt than other times. It never can have too much chocolate. Um, but each lot number of each brand is a little bit different. It may have a little bit more of one antibody than another antibody. Um, but it is basically a solution of antibodies and it contains antibodies against all the diseases that the donors have had or against which they've been vaccinated. So I tell people that um, the common cold, there's tons and tons of common cold antibody in immunoglobulin, whether it's the common cold that you're exposed to on a given afternoon may or may not be uh, it may or may not be, so you may get a cold, but there's lots and lots of cold antibody and tetanus antibody and measles antibody. And since November, there's been COVID antibody and the COVID antibody rises with every lot number that comes off the conveyor belt. It is basically IgG. There's very little IgA or IgM in gamma globulin. So when you look at your numbers and you are wondering why your IgG has gone up and your IgA and your IgM haven't, it isn't because you're doing something wrong or we're doing something wrong. It's just that the product is replacing the IgG. And I tell patients it's because the IgG is the money molecule. It's the specific disease molecule that targets diseases. Um, and that's the molecule that you need. You don't need a general IgM molecule or an IgA molecule. It's important that you know that it's absolutely safe and it's been manufactured using multiple safety state steps, beginning with donor selection and screening and virus inactivations. So you don't need to lie awake at night worrying about what you're putting in your body. It's absolutely as safe as it possibly can be. It is not 
a cure. Um, when I start new patients on therapy, they always say, well, how long will it take before my own system kicks back in? It isn't going to kick back in. Immunoglobulin does not cure any antibody deficiency. It just gives you what you can't make for yourself or supplements, which you already have. So I tell people it's a little bit like if you have an old car and the engine isn't as great as it used to be, as long as you keep gas in it, you can keep the car running, even if it may not be as efficient as it used to be. Also, immunoglobulin is not a cure for an acute infection. Um, sometimes people say, well, I have X illness. Don't you think I need an extra dose of gamma globulin? Not, it's not a cure for an acute infection. So the goal for therapy is to provide protection, <clears throat> pardon me, against severe and or frequent infections. I'd love to say you're never gonna get another sniffly nose or another sinus infection. Uh, not true, um, but the goal is to provide you from a pneumonia that puts you in the hospital or causes something much, much worse. And it's also more importantly, and I should have reversed these bullets because I think the second bullet is more important than the first bullet. It's to give you therapy that will help you live the life that you want to live. Um, so many people come to us that have been sick for so many years and they're just sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time. And we put them on therapy and we really hope to change their lives and give them the life that they want to lead back again. So there's a couple things when you're on IG therapy that you need to remember. You absolutely need to know your product and your dose. Nothing makes me crazier than when I say, and how much gamma globulin are you on? And, and somebody says, hmm, not 100% sure. You absolutely need to know your product and your dose. It needs to be on your medication list and everybody who cares for you needs to know that you're on gamma globulin. It may affect um, some blood tests that are done. It may affect some therapies that you need. If people don't know you're on this therapy, they can't take care of you as well as they need to. Your, whomever prescribes it for you is gonna monitor your blood work for your Ig levels and any potential adverse effects. And as I said, your A and your M are not gonna be changed. Important to know routine vaccinations may not be necessary. You need to ask your provider. Um, and I just got a, a message this morning from uh, one of my patients whose primary care doctor wanted to give them a pneumonia shot. Well, I diagnosed him because he didn't respond to the pneumonia shot. And that's why he's on therapy and he has more pneumonia, pneumococcal antibody than another 60 people. And all that vaccine is gonna do is give him a sore arm. So I told him to let his primary care provider know that he did not need the latest pneumococcal vaccine. And as I said, it may have an impact on other therapies that you need or diagnostics that are done. So people need to know you're on it. So you need immunoglobulin replacement. You've got a diagnosis. You don't make antibody. You've been prone to infections. So what's the next step? You have options. Tons and tons of options. And Kathy Antela is gonna laugh because she always teases me about my shoes, but these are, you can go a variety of directions and the directions are virtually unlimited. 
your decisions. What route do you want to use? Do you want IV drug? Do you want subcutaneous drug? Do you want facilitated subcutaneous drug? Can you do it yourself? Do you want to do it yourself? I have people that don't want to do it. They want to be taken care of. And you know what? That's absolutely fine. There's lots of products on the market. For a lot of people, they want to know what the cost is going to be and what the impact of the cost is going to be on their lives. Fortunately, that's not as big a deal in the United States as it is in other places. Um, there are cost differences between different routes, but all of the manufacturers have copay assistance programs that help patients pay for their drug. Is one way better than another? And that question always comes up. People say, well, what would you do if you were me or if your child were sick like my child is? That question doesn't have one answer because one way might be better for patient A than it is for patient B. Where do you want to do it? Do you want to do it at home? Do you want to do it in a hospital infusion suite, in a freestanding infusion suite? Where? Are there side effects that I need to consider? How long does an infusion take? How long do I want it to take? The question is what's right for me? And all of these questions have multiple, multiple answers and the answers depend on who's asking the questions. So options for therapy, there are multiple products on the market now. It used to be about 15, 16 years ago, there was only one subcutaneous product that the FDA had approved. Now there are multiple subcutaneous products and there continue to be multiple IV products. You can give it intravenously every three to four weeks. You can give it subcutaneously every day to up to every 14 days. And then there's a facilitated subcutaneous product, which is a little bit of a hybrid that is given every two to four weeks. It talked about sites for care, home hospital-based infusion suites, freestanding infusion suites. And there are more options than that. I used to have a patient who was commuting in Northern Virginia into the Pentagon in DC. And he used to put plug himself into his infusion on Monday mornings as he got into his car. And he did his infusion in his car on the way into the Pentagon every Monday morning. I used to tease him on when there was a Monday holiday. I said, so what are we doing this week? And he said, you know, I did it on Tuesday. And I said, of course, I know you did it on Tuesday. But you can do some therapies you can do virtually anywhere. Products. So it's important that you know all the products are approved by the FDA. I know the FDA kind of has a bad name nowadays, but all of the products are approved. Interestingly, you may not know that all plasma for products given in the United States have to be made from plasma collected in the United States. The product itself doesn't have to be manufactured here, and many of the companies collect plasma and send it to Europe, and it's manufactured in Europe. The gamma globulin that you get this week is going to be made from plasma that was collected here in the United States. They are all safe and all equally effective. People say, well, which one is the best? They're all equally effective. The FDA demands to see data about infection prophylaxis, infection protection, and safety of products. And they are all equally safe and equally effective. They do differ in concentration and how they're made. 
Um, some of the subcutaneous products have different amino acids as stabilizers. Um, they all have a little bit different combination. Going back to my statement before about your favorite recipe, it's, it's all the same, but sometimes the recipes are a little bit different. So the route of administration, and this is a busy table, um, but it's an important table. Um, and it talks about IV gamma globulin, subcutaneous gamma globulin, and facilitated gamma globulin. And I already talked about the frequency of dosing. The IgG level is different among these roots. Um, when you give an IV dose, you give a large amount of gamma globulin, you put it right into the circulatory system and it swishes around your system very quickly. So it shoots your IgG up very precipitously. And then the half-life of gamma globulin is about 21 days. So over the course of three, three weeks or so, the level comes down, then you get another dose and the IgG go, level goes up again. So it's a little bit like, think about a, a roller coaster. You get a peak, you come down the curve, you go up and you come down. Um, with facilitated subcutaneous gamma globulin, there is a peak and a decrease, but it's not as extreme as it is with IVIG. When you give subcutaneous gamma globulin, there's virtually no variation in the IgG level once you get to steady state, as long as you infuse. And that's an important step, but it's a little bit like if you picture your system as a bucket that has a hole in it and you wanna keep the bucket full of fluid, you can either let all the fluid drain out and then put a large amount in and fill the bucket up all at once, or you can top the bucket off with a little bit of fluid every day so that the level doesn't get very low. So it's a little bit of a silly analogy, but it works. Access, obviously for IV gamma globulin, you need IV access. A port is not an option for patients with primary immunodeficiencies. None of the professional associations endorse ports for patients with primary immunodeficiencies. Facilitated sub-Q and straightforward sub-Q obviously doesn't require IV access and patients can do their therapy independently once they're trained. So no nursing support is needed to start a line. Needle sticks, generally IV is one stick as long as you can get an IV in. Most nurses can do it extraordinarily well. Sub facilitated subcutaneous takes one to two needles generally. Subcutaneous takes one to four or more, depending on the dose and patient preference. Time of infusion, generally an IV infusion is about three to four hours. A subcutaneous facilitated sub-Q infusion is also a little bit on the longer side. Subcutaneous straightforward infusions can be given virtually as rapidly as you can tolerate it. There's, there's a lot of anecdotal literature and data supporting safe, rapid infusions. Um, and there's also data and support for patients who push their dose as rapidly as they tolerate it instead of using a pump. I talked about needing nursing and not nursing. Side effects are something to consider. So because you're putting IV gamma globulin right into the system, systemic side effects are possible. In the old days, in the late 70s and the early 80s, when it was a relatively new product, 
people did have a lot of problem tolerating it. They had chills, they had rigors, they had some fatigue afterwards, sometimes some nausea and vomiting. People sometimes got a wicked headache 24, 36 hours after their infusions. The products have changed in the last 25 years or so. And a lot of those systemic side effects don't occur as frequently as they did when it was a relatively new product. With facilitated subcutaneous, as I said, it's a hybrid, so you can get some systemic side effects, but certainly to a lesser degree than you get with IVIG. And because you're putting subcutaneous gamma globulin into the subcutaneous tissue, as opposed right into your system, there are usually no systemic effects. Sometimes pre-medication is necessary for IVIG and facilitated sub-Q, but not at all for sub straightforward sub-Q. The reality is that when you put sub-Q gamma globulin into your fat, it's not even measurable in any amount in your system for 24 to 36 hours. So any pre-medication is pointless. If you actually got some kind of a side effect, perhaps a headache or something afterwards, it makes sense to medicate after the infusion, not pre-medicate. Generally, there's no local side effects with IVIG unless your IV infiltrates, but there absolutely are some local effects with sub-Q, whether it's facilitated or straightforward. And those usually are worst when you start therapy because your body doesn't recognize that sub-Q gamma globulin and perceives it as something foreign. And when the body is invaded by something foreign, it sets off an inflammatory cascade. So there's redness and there's swelling that you absolutely expect at the start of therapy. Sometimes some people have a little bit of some burning and itching, but that generally decreases with every single infusion. If it doesn't, it may be the way that the drug is being infused. And sometimes if you tweak, um, sometimes the uh, infusion supplies, it helps with those kinds of issues. Um, obviously, IVIG is not portable because you need an infusion pump. And the same thing is you need a high flow infusion pump for facilitated sub-Q. So it's not portable. Sub-Q straightforward is absolutely portable. Um, people travel all over the world. I have a lady who's on a, a cruise um, right now. She started in Florida and she's cruising to Europe and around the Mediterranean and she's gonna be gone for six weeks and she packed her subcute gamma globulin with her. I used to have a patient who was a college professor of anthropology and his field of expertise was Micronesia. And every summer he would pack his subcutaneous gamma globulin in his backpack and head off to Micronesia. So it's very, very portable. Cost for IV gamma globulin, in addition to the drug, there is cost for a nursing or an infusion center. For facilitated sub-Q and straightforward sub-Q, the cost is only for drugs and supplies. So as I said, kind of a, a busy slide, but in a nutshell, the difference is that one needs to consider when they're making choices. So subcutaneous parameters. Um, these are from the monographs of the different products on the market. Concentration is from 10% up to 20%. You can give them daily up to every 14 days. Um, 
they call for lots and lots of sites. I know if I said six sites to one of my patients, they would say, yeah, right, sure, you absolutely, you have to be kidding me. Um, I don't use a lot of sites. Um, for most of my patients, two or three needles is more than sufficient. Um, the rates vary depending on product, but again, there's a lot of anecdotal data in the literature that talks about how infusion rates can be ramped up very successfully and patients can generally do their infusions as quickly as they choose to do them. Volumes per site are specified in the prescribing monographs as well. Um, and again, it depends on patients. For my rule of thumb, I know that most of my patients tolerate 30 or 35 cc's into a single site. I have people that do more. Um, I have people that don't like doing more. If you're curious about fluid, um, I probably, when I say 30 cc's, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but 30 cc's is two tablespoons. And I always tell people to go home and take out their measuring spoons and measure out their dose and just pour with water and just pour it on the countertop and see how big the bubble is. It looks like an enormous amount when it's in a big 60C syringe that you're putting into a freedom pump. But if you just pour it on the countertop, it's really a very small bubble uh, puddle. Um, and people are generally reassured by it's not half as much fluid as they think it is. Um, and people can put fluid per site, as I said, it is specified in the monographs, but people do it as tolerated. So thinking about the differences and all of the options, whether they're clinically important, whether they're advantages, disadvantages, should be determined by both the prescriber and the patient. And I never call things advantages or disadvantages. I talk about differences. And what's an advantage for me might be a major league disadvantage for you. I have patients that say, if you locked me in the closet and told me I couldn't come out of the closet till I stuck myself, I would never come out of the closet because I will never ever put a needle in myself. Well, obviously that's not the patient that subcutaneous gamma globulin is gonna work for. So that portability, that flexibility, is a disadvantage for the patient, not an advantage. But both the prescriber and the patient need to weigh in on looking at the differences and considering the options. I always say this to lay audiences, if you hate your infusion regimen, part of that's on you. You need to be your own advocate. You have to have a discussion with your prescriber and say, listen, I really hate this. I dread it every week. I don't want to do it. And the question needs to be asked, well, what can we do to make it better? And if you don't have that discussion, then nobody can fix your problem. You have to be your own advocate and talk about what you want and discuss it with your prescriber. And I have 500 patients on immunoglobulin replacement therapy. And I laughingly say, I probably have 500 different infusion regimens because everybody's taken the infusion regimen and tweaked it and made it their own. And if any of my patients are, are out there in that audience, they will all shake their heads yes. After I teach them the procedure for infusion, I say, that's the least important thing that I'm teaching you. The most important thing that I teach you in this session is to take control of this, make it your own, decide what it looks like for you. 
and I will help you make it look that way. And that's the conversation that needs to happen. And I just put this slide up because somebody bet me one time when I said I could think of a hundred different ways to give six grams of gamma globulin per week. And these are all the parameters that I can play with. So if you start with a concentration, it's either 30 mils, 36 mils or 60 mils. You can give it every day up to every two weeks. The number of needles can change. The time of infusion can change. It can be pushed or pumped. So I can come up with more ways than anybody even wants to hear to give that dose. And it's all about the possibilities because, and Kathy Angel tells me I have to put this slide in, because gamma globulin is absolutely like ice cream. There's people like my husband who need their bowl of vanilla ice cream a couple times a week. But then there's people who like different flavors and toppings or ice cream bars or cones or fancy cones or sundaes or banana slits or death by chocolate. But remember, there is ice cream for everyone. And I think that's the slides that I wanted to take you through because um, I wanted to make sure that you would be able to ask your questions um, and hopefully we can address as many of them as possible. Thank you is not even enough because you are amazing and you, you make it sound so simple. And I think back 25 years ago and would have been very lucky to have you as the person explaining IG therapy to me as my son was starting this therapy. So thank you very much. And now a quick word. For people living with primary immunodeficiency, dealing with health insurance and understanding the maze of issues involved can be overwhelming. Often, health insurance companies require additional paperwork to justify the use of the therapy prescribed. Added red tape and follow-up phone calls can be frustrating. Luckily, IDF is here to help. At primaryimmune.org, you can find our Patient Insurance Center webpage that is designed to help you navigate the complicated ins and outs of health insurance coverage. From a glossary of terms to appealing denials and helping you choose a provider, IDF is committed to helping you make sure you get the care that you deserve. Visit primaryimmune.org slash patient dash resource dash center or follow the link in the podcast description. For more than 100 years, we've turned innovative thinking into solutions. CSL's investment in innovation has helped to develop a robust pipeline of safe and effective medicines and improve existing ones so that we can bring patients meaningful innovations and advancements that make their lives better. Good evening. My name is Shannon Plymouth and I work within the consumer marketing team at Griffles. Thank you, IDEA, for your continuous work in advocacy, education, and research. At Griffles, we also have a common mission of improving the lives of people living with rare diseases. We continue to invest in plasma collection so that we can ensure that we have a robust supply of medicine. We remain a committed and trusted partner. Thank you, IDF, for leading the way. Griffles considers it an honor to serve the PI community. Welcome to the IDF Forum. 
I am Kim Farrell, Product Line Manager with Acredo. Acredo is a best-in-class specialty pharmacy with a nationwide network of immune globulin-trained home infusion nurses and pharmacists. It is truly an honor and privilege to be part of this immune deficiency community. Acredo places patients at the center of all we do. We deliver individualized care and support for patients living with immune disorders. It's all about giving you a great and personalized pharmacy experience. My name is Dana Fladhammer, and I am lucky enough to lead the MyIG Source Patient Advocates here at Takeda. For all of us, when we say this community is built by us, for us, all of us, what I mean by that is all of the advocates on our team are either living with primary immunodeficiency or have a family member who is. I'm no different. All four of my kids are living with PI. All four of them are on IG treatment, and I know that each of them is an individual. So I particularly love this topic because I agree wholeheartedly. What works for one might not be what's best for another, and how great it is that we have Dr. Younger here to be able to present this to us. Kathy, if you want to move the slides, I want to tell everybody a little bit about my IG source. So my IG source is this phenomenal resource, and what I love most about it is that the program was built by those of us living with PI or people living with PI. And I think even more than that, what I love is that we're open to all people regardless of treatment. You don't need to be on the Takeda treatment because our program actually isn't about treatment. Our program is all about education and support and making sure that you never feel like you have to do this alone. So that's what you see up on our screen right now some of our resources that we have from our book, You're Not Alone, to our MyIG education programs, all of which are unbranded and are about things like, how do you explain primary immunodeficiency to somebody else? And how can we communicate better with our healthcare providers? And our infusion log and wellness calendar is not only about how do I track my infusions, but also how do I communicate better with my healthcare providers and give them the data that helps tell the story of what's going on. We can keep going, Kathy. These are a few more of our resources. I won't go into each and every one of them, but I will suggest this. On myigsource.com, we have this really awesome tool, which is called our preferences assessment. The MyIG preferences assessment is all about figuring out, hey, what are some of the options that are out there when you're talking about IG? And how do you make it work in your life with your lifestyle of course, with those conversations with your healthcare provider to make sure that what you come up with and what you think might work in your lifestyle is what's appropriate for you. Because yeah, it's a discussion between you and your healthcare provider. But I love this tool. I have an advocate on our team who describes it as being like when you go to the eye doctor and they go A or B, one or two, and you just keep going through questions until you really start to come up with a chart of things that are coming, kind of like, hey, what are the preferences? What are the things that you would prioritize in your life? And it's not meant to be at all a, hey, here's what you should do. What it's meant to be is, hey, doc, nurse, here are the conversations and here are the things that I prioritize. How does that work with the goals that we have medically? Because that's a conversation between you and your doctor. Again, I just want to say, at my IJ source, all of us are living with PI. And we've been through this pandemic. And we recognize that nobody should have to do it alone, which is why we open our program up to all people, regardless of treatment. That means whether you are living with PI, whether you are the spouse of somebody living with PI, whether you are 
have, a, have children with PI, we believe that everybody deserves support and education along the way. With that, from Takeda and my IG source, I'll say thank you again. Thank you, IDF, for the phenomenal, phenomenal programs you guys have done. Talk about switching it up and bringing in this virtual environment so quickly. And of course, Dr. Younger, to you, thank you. Much appreciated. And thank you to those sponsors for being part of our community and everything they do for every single one of us, every single day. It's an honor to work with them. And now, time for the Q&A. And throughout the Q&A, you are welcome to continue submitting your questions into the Q&A um, icon, which is probably right at the bottom of your screen. And at this time, I am going to turn the Q&A over to my colleague, Colleen Brock, who is Manager of Medical Programs at IDF. Hello, everyone. Glad you're here with us this evening. And thank you, Dr. Younger, for an excellent presentation. We're going to get started with the questions. I have some that were submitted beforehand, and then I have some that were submitted during your presentation. We are not going to be able to address all of them this evening. Some of them have to do with insurance, and we just recently had an insurance forum that I encourage you to go back onto the website and look at that. We're also going to have another one coming forward. We've also had some COVID questions and we have the COVID videos also on the forum. So we're gonna to stick to the topic for this evening. Having said that, let's move forward. So one of the questions that I got, Dr. Younger is, why aren't nurses trained and certified specifically in IG therapy to be sent out to train people when they are starting their infusions? They absolutely are trained um, to go out and teach. Um, there is an organization called the Immunoglobulin Nursing Society that gives a certification exam. Um, there are nurses who have taken that certification exam and are certified in this therapy. All of the large pharmacies generally have a nursing staff that they work with. Um, if, if you've had an experience where you've had a nurse who doesn't know what he or she is doing, um, that would be extraordinarily unusual. Um, as I said, they are absolutely, the nurses are absolutely trained um, and trained to teach. Is there a way that you can ask for one or ask if I would, your nurse yeah, has I would, the credentials? Yeah, I would ask, absolutely ask the specialty pharmacy is, is, you know, are your nurses certified by the IGNS? Are they trained? Um, there are a variety of, as I said, not only the IGNS certification, um, but there are other um, uh, specially trained nurses that um, companies use. Thank you. Now, how often do you see your doctor and have your blood work done to make sure that you are getting the correct dose? So for my patients, I monitor blood work twice a year. I see patients who are um, doing very well on their therapy annually. Obviously, if you're sick, you call me and we see you tomorrow. If you've had a pattern of illnesses and there's a question about um, 
whether we're not giving you enough immunoglobulin or um, then obviously all bets are off and we see you more frequently. But for patients who've been started on therapy and are doing extraordinarily well, um, we monitor blood work twice a year and see patients annually. Um, many of the insurance companies require authorization on an annual basis or on every six months um, and they demand that blood work. Um, CVS is, is one of the ones that, that um, demands that there be a, a, a blood test every year. Um, and we do it more frequently than that. And I believe most, most of my colleagues do the same thing. You had talked about um, the different products. Yes. Is there a test or a way to tell which product is best for you? Um, no. Um, as I said, the products are all virtually identical in terms of safety and efficacy. Um, it, in the olden days, before most of us were born, um, there used to be sugar in gamma globulin products. So you use them very carefully in diabetic patients. There is no longer sucrose in any United States gamma globulin product. Um, the concentration can be a factor. If you have fluid sensitivity, um, you have a cardiac condition and you're very careful with your fluid, obviously you'd probably wanna use something with, that was a little bit more concentrated than something that was less concentrated. So you could use a smaller amount of fluid. Um, as I said, all of the parameters need to be considered and each patient needs to be considered. For example, when I start a young child, of a four or five-year-old, a child perhaps with excellent gamma globulinemia, somebody who's gonna be on therapy for their entire life, unless we come up with a cure for XLA. Um, I start them with a very small volume of subcutaneous gamma globulin. I don't use a product that's gonna have a large amount of fluid to it. I use the smallest amount of fluid I can use in a very small patient. So as I said, better is a, better for a patient is, is not an easy thing to judge. Every patient needs to be considered individually um, and your prescriber will make any considerations that are necessary <clears throat> to individualize therapy. And, and if one product is preferable to another, then your prescriber will absolutely take care of that. Can you talk a little bit about a small child starting on infusion therapy? Mm -hmm. Somebody who is starting sub-Q for their son who is 12 months old and looking for some suggestions. Um, I, so technically 12 months old is off-label, even though there's plenty of anecdotal data and there's plenty of things in the literature, but all of the subcutaneous products are only approved for ages two and up. Um, so there may be some pushback from an insurance company doing an authorization um, saying that. I give subcutaneous gamma globulin to children of all ages, including infants. Um, I generally push rather than pump subcutaneous immunoglobulin in infants um, and do it. It's a very, very small amount, um, depending on how much the baby weighs. Generally, it's a teaspoon of fluid. Um, and I usually you start it every two weeks. 
Um, and then as the child grows, you decrease um, the interval. And um, I go from every two weeks to every 10 days to every week, um, generally with, with that small amount of fluid. And I just push it, I don't pump it. Um, and I can do a baby sleeping in my arms so I know in my heart of hearts that I'm not causing them uh, extraordinary pain. There's specific sites that you prefer parents use? For infants. For, for, for infants, I use the I use the sides of their legs, the same place where they get their vaccines. Perfect. Somebody had questioned if there's a chart with the different therapies. IDF does have that. It is on the website, and it's, but if it's you also can't, in, it's also in the patient family handbook. Correct. So, if you have trouble finding it, just let us know through Ask IDF, and we can get you that. Yeah, it's actually it's actually my chart in the patient family handbook um, with a couple of modifications. It's it's the chart that I that I put up on the slide. Um, I wrote that. Perfect. This person says, I receive infusions, but I've always received them solely through one route, one way. What other options are there for IG replacement and how well do they work over time? Well, I, I showed you the options. There's three different ways to give gamma globulin. You can do it IV, you can do it sub-Q, or you can do facilitated sub-Q. And I'm going to digress for half a second, Colleen, because I did notice that there was a question pop up and I realized that I had done a disservice. I didn't describe facilitated substance. There's a um, lot of questions about that. I was going to ask I, you. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do that now, please, okay. because it's important. Right. And I, and I didn't mean to do a disservice. So facilitated sub-Q is a, a little bit of a hybrid. Um, it's, it's gamma globulin given subcutaneously, but there's a product called hyaluronidase, which is an enzyme that you inject into the abdomen before you do the gamma globulin. And what that enzyme does is it makes it possible to put a large volume into the sub-Q space um, for lack of a better scientific explanation, just for a lay um, explanation. It's sort of, there's a collagen matrix and it, it breaks down that matrix and um, it allows for a larger volume to go in to the sub-Q space. So once you give that hyaluronidase, then you can give a large amount of sub-Q gamma globulin and you can give two weeks worth, three weeks worth, four weeks worth, all at the same time. Um, it's a very large volume. Um, it's hundreds of cc's as opposed to the tens of cc's that we were talking about with regular sub-Q. Um, but patients do it less frequently. And as I said, they do a large volume. Um, it, it does take an infusion pump. It takes a large volume infusion pump. It's an infusion that takes a couple of hours, um, but patients do it every two, three or four weeks. But as I said, it makes it possible to give a large amount. So dosing less frequently than traditional sub-Q. So as I said, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a hybrid. And now to go back to the original question. So the cho choices for gamma globulin are IVIG, subcutaneous IG, or facilitated sub-Q. And if you've been doing it the same way for a very long time, it's absolutely time to have a conversation with your provider. Um, 
if you want to change things up, if you want to do things differently. I am sorry, Beth. I just said, again, be your own advocate. Well, and my immunologist wants me to start therapy. I've never had infections of any kind. Why would I want to start doing this? So we have this conversation frequently. Um, if we've made a diagnosis and proven that you don't make antibody effectively, even if you haven't had infections, this is prophylaxis. And your first infection could be a pneumonia that puts you in the ICU on a ventilator. Your first infection could be a meningitis that causes neurologic deficit. Um, most patients have a history of infections, but there are absolutely some who don't have bad infections, what they consider frequent infections. But if you have a significant antibody deficiency, uh, my partner um, always says it's a little bit like driving your car without insurance. You certainly have no intention of getting into a car accident, but in, just in case you do, it's awfully nice to have an insurance policy. Um, and that's the way we pose it to patients when we diagnose them with a significant immunodeficiency. Ultimately, it is your choice. Um, I never write orders. I give advice and make suggestions. And as a patient, you have the option to take my advice, to take my suggestion or say, no, thank you. Um, and and that, that's the answer to your question. Um, you have the option, but if you've been diagnosed with a clinically significant immunodeficiency that requires immunoglobulin, then you're driving your car without car insurance. So another question, we we're talking about like the different types of medications. If your doctor is the one who chooses and they give you one, you know, basically one choice, this is what you're going to get. And they're getting it from a specific company. How is that considered individualized care? It's not individualized care until you ask the question, is this the only option for me? Then it becomes individualized care because then the options have to be discussed. Does your age have anything to do with the method of administration that you choose? No. I, get, I, I have infants that I give gamma globulin to and, patient, and my oldest patient is 97. And my 97 year old does subcutaneous infusions every week. Is it rare to be diagnosed when you're older? This patient, it's not that rare that actually the curve um, is goes over all age spans. Um, this patient who's 97 wasn't diagnosed at the age of 97. He's been on therapy for, mm, I want to say maybe 15 years or so. Um, no, it's not rare. It's not 100% common, but an immunodeficiency like common variable immunodeficiency can be diagnosed at any age. Are there treatment options being explored for people with PI that do not involve infusions? It depends on what your primary immunodeficiency is. So let's yeah. say you have an antibody yeah. disorder. I beg your pardon, Kelly? Let's say you have an antibody disorder. It depends on whether that 
antibody disorder is clinically significant or not. Um, there are multiple antibody disorders. There's something called specific antibody disorder, which is an antibody disorder where you just don't make antibody to one particular type of vaccine or organism. There are what are called subclass deficiencies, um, which are breakdowns of IgG. Um, most immunologists don't think subclass deficiencies are clinically significant, um, but there are some rare patients for whom they are. Um, so for clinically significant antibody disorders, the only treatment is to give you the antibodies that you can't manufacture for yourself. There's no research um, being done to cure those illnesses. Um, right now, we're very into the genetics of them, um, and we're trying to find uh, genetic links to those diseases. And as soon as we have genetic links, then the possibilities for treatment in other directions should be possible. But right now, if you don't make antibody, the only option is to get the antibodies that you can't make for yourself. Okay. Does getting the antibody therapy change your DNA? No. And does it make you more prone to cancer? No, absolutely not. However, patients with common variable immunodeficiency and other primary immunodeficiencies like Wiscott-Aldrich disease or hyper-IgM syndrome, those patients have a higher tendency, a higher risk for lymphoid cancers. Um, ataxia telangiectasia is another immunodeficiency that patients have a higher risk, but the therapy itself doesn't cause a risk for cancer. The disease has a propensity toward cancers. And talking, and talking about antibodies, can you please address passive versus innate? in general, and is there a difference and does your body know that difference? There's really not a significant difference. Passive antibodies are antibodies that you get because you've had a disease. Innate antibodies are antibodies that you've gotten from, well, when you're born, you've gotten them from your mother. Is there a general shift from IVIG to subcutaneous treatments? Yes, and it's it's gone up every single survey that's been done year to year to year. Um, I will tell you that in Europe, um, they've been doing subcutaneous gamma globulin a, a tremendously long time. Um, and there's virtually, I wouldn't say virtually no, but there's very little IV therapy in Europe um, in other places in the world. Um, but yes, more and more people go to it every year um, the only the last IDF survey, Kathy, you'll correct me, was was it 2010? I think that sounds about right. Um, and those numbers increase with every one of the IDF surveys. And that's a self-selected population. But um, I will tell you, in my own patient population, um, I have 500 patients on immunoglobulin therapy. I have fewer than 20 who are still doing IV infusions. Is it based on choice, insurance, or both? For most patients, it's based on choice, and we always give patients the choice. Insurance, actually insurance, uh, IV gamma globulin 
can cause cost more than sub-Q gamma globulin because you've got nursing and a plus or minus an infusion center cost. Mm-hmm. When you use subcutaneous gamma globulin, it's just the drug and the infusion supplies. So generally it's not insurance. That's the driving force, it's choice. So going to some dosing and timing questions. People have asked about when is the decision made if you're getting IV to do every three weeks versus every four weeks? So I I showed, I talked about the curve that IV, the half-life of IgG is 21 days. So we always give IV gamma globulin every three weeks. Um, nobody's really very sure why it started out as every four weeks. It just sort of did. Um, but patients who have, there's something called a wear-off effect, and it used to be very prevalent when the majority of people were on IV drug. And people would, before their next infusion, they would find themselves getting sick. They would find themselves being more tired. I used to have a gentleman that said, you know, I don't even look at my calendar. I wake up and I'm snuffly and and tired and I know it's time for another infusion. Um, And people that had that wear off effect, we we moved them from four weeks down to three weeks. And now, as I said, when I prescribe it, I only prescribe it every three weeks. Um, It it depends on how you tolerate it and, and what kind of Um, trough levels you have of IgG. Um, If your trough level gets to an unprotective level after four weeks, then your prescriber is, I can almost guarantee, is going to want to move you back to three weeks. Is there a way to know when the medication is no longer working? Is it just the fact that you start to get sick? I've got a couple of questions you know, you've gained weight, is that time to tell your doctor and change your infusion dosage? Absolutely. What affects that dosage rate? Yeah, it absolutely does. Five pounds one way or another, 10 pounds one way or another isn't going to make a difference. But if you've had a 50 pound weight loss, that could be significant. You could be underdosing or overdosing if you've had a significant weight loss because the weight, the dosing is, is based on weight. And even though I've been on the same dose for my weekly infusions for a long time, why would my levels start going down all of a sudden? Sometimes it depends on age. There is, there is a certain, um, the older you get, the less effective your system gets. Um, and you're no very few people are absolutely on empty that they you know unless you have excellent agammaglobulinemia or other kinds of agammaglobulinemia most people when they were diagnosed had an IgG of maybe 300 or 400 so they were making some immunoglobulin on their own just not enough to protect them um, as you get older that production does wane all right Sounds good. Now let's move on to your lovely troubleshooting questions. Okay. Because <laughs> we have quite a few of people that are having trouble with their subcutaneous infusions. What do I do with leaking at needle sites? The, they're constantly leaking and I'm running out of sites to use. I'm betting your needle's not long enough. 
and you need to put the you need to get a little bit of a longer needle. You also need to consider decreasing the volume per site. I don't know what kind of volume you're putting in, but it may be that you're putting in more volume than you can tolerate. You know, when we first started doing subcutaneous gamma globulin, um, we had these little six millimeter needles and six millimeters is about a quarter of an inch. And we thought they were the cutest little needles we ever saw. And we popped these little needles into patients and they had terrible skin reactions and they had leakage. And we realized that we were putting those needles into the skin they weren't getting solidly into the fat. And we quickly learned, we weren't very stupid, we were reasonably intelligent, that <laughs> getting, getting a little bit of a longer needle is a better way to go. Um, and I will tell you that I don't use six millimeter needles now on virtually anybody. Um, and my, my, the vast majority of my people are doing a 12 millimeter needle, um, which is, which I know is solidly into the sub-Q tissue and I have very little problems with leaking. The other thing that I would recommend is I don't know what sites you're using. Um, most people start with their abdomen and tend to hang out with their abdomen. My personal favorite spot are the hips. Um, and to find that spot, if every one of you is sits up straight and puts the heel of your hands on, on your sides, on your hip, on the hip bone, and point your fingers down to the floor. Under your fingers, there's an amazing little pad of fat. And everybody's got that fat pad. I don't care if you're a marathon runner or a ballet dancer, you've got a pad of fat there. It's absolutely on the side. If you can't see your hands, you're, you're back too far, you're in your buns but I love that hip spot. It's not under your underwear waistband. It's not under your blue jeans waistband. It's out of the way. So you don't um, have a lump that, that's being rubbed by anything. That's my absolute favorite spot um, for, all, for virtually all my patients. I, I tell them about that spot. And a lot of people start with their abdomen and then they move to that spot. And they're like, wow, it made such an amazing difference. What do you do when blood backs up on the needle? You need to take the needle out and replace it. Okay. It's not possible to, there's no big vessels in your subcutaneous tissue. So what you're probably doing is sitting on the, on the top of a little capillary or something, but subcutaneous gamma globulin cannot be put into the bloodstream in any way, shape or form. So you need to take that needle out and replace it. When rotating infusion sites, can all of your infusions be in one body part? For example, the stomach. Absolutely. Or do you need to rotate infusion sites among different body parts, stomach no. and legs? I don't rotate. And most of my colleagues who do as much sub-Q gamma globulin as I do, don't rotate sites either. You want the cells in a particular area to recognize the drug and to get mushy. Um, you don't want to introduce drug into a new site every single time. If you'll let me use an analogy, think about your subcute tissue as, uh, I'm sorry, your subcute gamma globulin as being something foreign. Think about it as like a splinter in your finger and think how your finger gets a little bit red and a little bit swollen. Every single time you go to a new site, that subcute gamma globulin is like another splinter. You want the sites and the cells to get used to recognizing it so that it's not a splinter. And as I said, those cells get mushy 
and they spread aside readily as opposed to pushing back. So most of my colleagues, as I say, who do this as much as I do, do not advocate rotating sites. When using a transfer spike for subcutaneous, should you remove the white cap on the vent? No. I get air in my syringe when I tilt the serum vials to get the last bit of serum. What is the best way to get air out of the syringe without pushing out any of the serum? You need to, to rotate the syringe, hold it straight up and down so that the fluid goes to the bottom and the air goes to the top. And then you can push out the air. I will tell you though, one of my secrets is that if you've got some bubbles, is I leave the bubbles at the top because bubbles make it very easy to prime the tubing. If you've got a few bubbles, you can watch them go down the tubing as you're priming the tubing. If you have been pristine and you have no bubbles, it's really hard to see the fluid when you're priming the tubing. So I generally don't get rid of every single bubble. Is there research on the benefits of subcutaneous, for example, fewer infections? And how soon does someone who starts on therapy start to receive those benefits? Okay, so it takes five doses to get to what's called a steady state which is this, the, the level of, of immunoglobulin that your prescriber thinks is gonna be the best for you in terms of protection. There is literature that shows a consistent level of IgG that you get with subcutaneous gamma globulin is better than the peak and the trough that you get with IV gamma globulin. There's somebody, and I think this would apply to um, quite a few people, unfortunately, who are older. I have arthritis in my hands and some loss of feeling in my fingers. Holding onto pens and pencils is difficult. I'd prefer to be on subcutaneous, but I don't think I'd be able to handle the needles. Is there any way for me to do sub-Q? So I have a bunch of different options. Um, and I actually found something new um, that I didn't realize was possible. I had always thought that um, subcutaneous gamma globulin was considered a self-infused drug, but I absolutely was able to get a nurse <clears throat> for one of my older patients with this same story. Um, and a nurse comes every two weeks and does a two-week subcutaneous infusion for a lady. So if that's your story, um, you could consider seeing if your insurance will pay for a home health nurse um, to do your infusions. The other thing is, is that... Um, See if, if there's a care buddy. I mean, I have taught daughters and sons and, and spouses and other people to help with infusions. Um, and I would try to see if you have trouble. Um, sometimes people think that they're gonna have a bit of a problem and they actually don't. Um, the other boon that's newer on the market is, and that other, that a bunch of companies are going to are pre-filled syringes. Um, which don't require drawing up. All it requires is a connection between the syringe and the pre-filled syringe, and you put the connection on and you push down on the plunger of the pre-filled syringe and the large syringe gets filled. So you don't have the pushing and pulling with the spike. Um, and that's helped some of my older patients who've had some, oh. some movement issues. Thank you, Dr. Younger. Let's talk about some side effects now. 
Um, an interesting question. Would like to learn about how people feel after treatment. Our daughter's mentally challenged and nonverbal. So it's hard for her to understand how her daughter might be feeling after a treatment. What should she look for? So most of my patients tell me that they have an improved sense of well-being after three or four doses, after they've had a month's worth of therapy. Um, and most of my people say, you know, I didn't realize that my baseline was crummy till I didn't feel crummy anymore. That I'd gotten so used to not feeling my best that I, I had a, a lowered baseline that when my baseline improved, it was cosmic to me. And I've heard that from multiple patients. Um, and that's, that's the experience that, that I get from, from most of my patients. Um, I'm not sure what signals your, your nonverbal daughter is gonna be giving you, but I suspect that she may have more energy and, and may um, approach things with a little bit more, um, with a little bit more of a positive attitude. It's really hard for me to, um, to you know, I don't know, you know what, what kind of deficits your daughter has, but I'm betting that, that you see that she, she does have an improved outlook and perhaps a little bit more energy. That's certainly what my patients tell me. I'm new to IG therapy and just began subcutaneous six weeks ago. I am tired and I yawn 10 minutes after my fusion begins and I'm tired for the next 18 hours. Do you have any suggestions to reduce my fatigue or is this a normal part of getting an infusion? So the reality is, is that when you're giving yourself subcutaneous gamma globulin, it's not in your system in any measurable amount for 24 to 36 hours. So if you're having fatigue for 18 hours after your sub-Q infusion, that's physiologically not really possible. And I wonder if something else is going on. Is that a conversation to have with her doctor? Absolutely. I seem to have a lot of night sweats the night of and several nights after my subcutaneous infusion. Is this common? No. Again, that, that needs to be discussed with your prescriber. There's a couple of people that have commented on, you talked about um, no need for pre-medications. Yes. There are people who get um, fluid and they get Tylenol or they get other medications before their treatments begin. Is this something that is just being routinely done by a doctor or is this something that really needs to be done? Should they speak up and try without it? What should they do? So, so if those are IV infusions that we're talking about, sometimes pre-medication is necessary for IV infusions. I will tell you that there are certain specialists, not immunologists, but oncologists who give gamma globulin to their patients um, for a variety of reasons. And oncologists are notorious for just pre-medicating everybody thinking that gamma globulin is not gonna be well tolerated. At Johns Hopkins, I've, I've partnered with the oncology people 
Um, and we actually, I actually rewrote the policy for IV gamma globulin um, that says that um, you don't give any pre-meds until intolerance to the therapy is, is demonstrated. So nobody gets a knee-jerk pre-medication for IV gamma globulin any longer. Um, but it, there are some people that do need it. There are still some people that get a gamma globulin headache after IV infusions and do need a pre-medication. For sub-Q gamma globulin, giving Tylenol, giving Benadryl, giving fluid is completely pointless. The drug is not in any measurable amount in their system for 24 to 36 hours. So giving a pre-medic, giving Benadryl is gonna give you a nice nap and do mm -hmm. nothing. Tylenol is gonna, if you have a headache, it's gonna help your headache, but it's gonna do nothing. There's no point in pre-medication for subcutaneous immunoglobulin infusions. I've got two people here who have had reactions to both. And I'm gonna read both of them and see if you can give them some advice. Cause I think this happens to more people than we know about. The first one tried IV and sub-Q with both experiences creating a systemic inflammatory response that took at least a week to calm down. I want to try again, but have no idea how to go about suggesting a brand or a method to my immunologist. The second one, she had a significant reaction to IV, had to go very slowly over two days every three weeks, had signs and symptoms for a few days to a week afterwards. But when she tried subcutaneous, she had massive hives at the sites and felt absolutely miserable. So when you've got people like this who've tried both methods, what would be next steps to consider? Okay, so the first person that I, I can't address, I don't know what that means, an inflammatory response. I, I don't know what that means. Um, and I, I, I can't respond to that. For the person who had tremendous intolerance to IV, um, that would be somebody that we would absolutely premedicate before the IV infusion. But I would also steer them away from IV infusions and steer them towards subcutaneous infusions. Um, and because you had hives with one brand of one lot, it does happen. Um, I remember when I started my slides, I said that every lot number is like your favorite recipe and they're all a little bit different. And sometimes people do have hives with one particular lot of an immunoglobulin and we change out the lot and it never happens again. And it never happens again. Or we change the product and it doesn't happen again. I would absolutely give subcutaneous gammaglobulin another try. Okay, just a couple more questions. Um, when you say not to rotate sites with subcutaneous, do you mean to use the exact same sites every single week? Yes. Or just use the same general sites? Same, what same, about scar tissue? The same general sites, obviously not looking for the same hole. There shouldn't be scar tissue. There's, no, there's nothing to cause scarring. Okay. Is there any risk associated with doing subcutaneous right before bed? No. And there were several comments about, is it safe to actually drive your car while getting your treatment? So no, there's no problem for bed. And I actually had a lady um, years ago 
who liked to do it while she was sleeping. She was one of my mm -hmm. people that liked a very, very, she, I did a super slow infusion and it, she did it while she was sleeping at night. And no, there's no problem with driving your car while you're doing your infusion. There's no problem with doing anything while you're doing the, your sub-Q infusion. The only thing you can't do is go swimming. You can go on your treadmill. You can go on your your bicycle. You can go out. If you're a little kiddle, you can go outside and play on the swing set. Um, I have plenty of people that that drive because um, that's kind. Of, they're kind of a captive audience. So there's nothing unsafe. There's nothing unsafe about it at all. If your immunologist has never brought that up as an option, what would you recommend to start brought, the conversation? Brought what up as an option? Subcutaneous. Oh, absolutely. So I'm tired of doing IV chemoglobulin. I, I hear, heard that a lot of people have moved to subcutaneous chemoglobulin. Can we talk about it? Okay. Blood clots. I've had several small pulmonary embolisms from IVIG and take Eliquis. How common is this? It's very common for IV drug. In fact, there are warnings in the um, on every gamma globulin product for blood clots. However, it's associated with IV infusions. It is not found generally for associated with sub-Q infusions. There's nothing in the literature talking about um, blood clots with sub-Q infusions. As a matter of fact, I have patients who are just like the patient who's sent in that question who are on... Um, AFib medications, Eliquis, um, um, Coumadin, aspirin therapy, um, and do not have clotting issues at all. If you're on blood thinners, is it still safe to, yes. to be on IVIG? No, not IVIG, sub-QIG. Okay. And there's a huge study, um, it was actually done by an immunologist in Florida, um, among his elderly population, most of whom were on, if they weren't on Eliquis or Brilenta or something, or Plaquin, uh, Plavix, um, were at least on 81 milligrams of aspirin. So virtually all the patients in his study um, were on some kind of blood thinning medication. And he tolerated, uh, the data supported 100% tolerance of subcutaneous gamma globulin in those patients. And does it matter what product, brand, dosage, or frequency as far as how the effect with the possibility of developing a PE? If you're giving IV drug, there's always a risk for blood clots, regardless of how often you give it, what the dose is, and what rate you give it at. Dr. Younger, thank you so much. We have comments that have come in saying, gee, I wish I lived closer so I could see Dr. Younger or, um, you know, I mean, multiple comments like that. Thank you so much. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically and leave us a review on iTunes so that others may discover this podcast as well. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. 
For more information on how to get engaged in advocacy on behalf of the PI community, check out IDF's Patient Advocacy Engagement Toolkit at primaryimmune.org slash patient toolkit. If you have a question you would like to be answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.